0: Welcome to the Eat, Train, Prosper podcast, where we provide you sustainable training principles for strength and building muscle, effective nutrition practices for improving and maintaining a lean physique, and practical lifestyle habits for becoming a champion of your own health, both inside and out. Hosted by Aaron Straker and Brian Borstein. What's up guys? Happy Tuesday. Welcome back to another episode of Eat Train Prosper. Today's episode is our June Instagram Q&A. It's been a little bit since we've done an Instagram Q&A. I think we may have even missed May with it. So I'm excited to dig into some of these questions. I was just talking to Brian uh, off air before we started recording, and I'm really, really pumped about the quality of questions that are starting to come in. Uh, something that I see on a lot of people when they do like Instagram Q&A boxes, they get really just like kind of unhelpful questions. Uh, and I'm glad that, I guess that I, I'm fortunate, or we are fortunate, I should say, that we have like a, a listenership that has moved past largely those questions around like, what food is best? Are these just like really open-ended vague questions? We get some pretty um good questions full of context, which will really allow us to provide a much more robust and helpful answer, which I'm really, really excited about. And I'm sure Brian is as well. Before we get into these Instagram questions, Brian, what's going on, my man?
1: Yeah, we have a pretty educated audience, which is, which is very lucky. I, uh, I wouldn't want to be dealing with, all of the, the new questions either, but we even did get a really good question from a beginner in, in here as well. Um, a training question. So anyways, uh, look forward to jumping into those, um, quick updates on my end or maybe not quick, but, um, you know how I go. Uh, it has now been like 11 or 12 days since I hit my lowest low for this diet, Um, which is the longest that I've gone without making like an aggressive adjustment. I think I even mentioned on the last episode that I tend to get jumpy around 10 days. So uh, we're at 11 or 12 days now. The lowest on the the lowest low was 184.2. And it has been all the way up to 186.8 in the last few days. And then today it's down to 184.8. So now it's. Basically within the range of where my low was from uh, from 11 or 12 days ago, but it's still I still, am you know, half a pound above that. So I still have not hit a new low Um, to add to that. Now there's a bit of a time concern and this is maybe where uh, my more aggressive approach is going to come in um, and be necessary. But um, basically, I've I've stated from the beginning that I wanted the diet to end the day that we leave for Wisconsin for our trip, which is going to be uh, Thursday, June 30th. Uh, and then I talked to my photographer guy and we're setting up the photo shoot for either the 28th or the 29th, which means that I want to linear load my carbs for four to five days before the photo shoot. So that's going to have to start on Friday. 624 um which is 17 days from right now so um you know my goal from the beginning has been to get to what i would call the low 180s um i think the low 180s start below 183 like i would say somewhere in the 182s would be would be low 180s Last year, I hit one eighty two point eight and then I was like so depleted and I only hit it once. It wasn't like a weekly average. It was just, hey, I hit one eighty two point eight. I hit my goal and then I started eating up into the photo shoot. And I was hoping this year to get a little lower than that, Um I guess that's officially two pounds from where I weighed today. So 182.8 from 184.8 would be two pounds, which means that it's like really reasonable. I mean, if I really wanted to, I could just not eat carbs for a day and I would hit that number. Um, so it's kind of a little bit ambiguous and that would totally be cheating the system. But um, you know what I really wanted to do was hit 182 something as a weekly average. And so I think that that's probably unrealistic at this point. Um, But I would like to at least, you know, have a more confident hangout in like the 182 range instead of just one random day where I hit it and then I'm immediately out of it. So, I, don't, I, I mean, I'm not like super tied to that. Like at the end of the day, the goal is to do my photo shoot at around 185, which is where I've done it the last two or three years and get those comparison shots. So how low I actually go isn't um hugely important. It's more of just kind of like a personal goal that I had set for myself. So, um so that's the plan with the, uh the nutrition side of things right now. You know, if, if tomorrow doesn't again, drop below where I am right now, I'm probably going to make a confident drop in calories, go from something that was around 2,600 average to maybe like a 2,300 average um, just cause I'm going to have 16 days left basically by tomorrow. So anyway, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think I have the right kind of perspective on there? What would you, what would you input there?
0: Yeah. I mean, the hard thing is you have an end date and a physique look you need at that end date thing. So I would, I'm a very, very big proponent of being ready early so that you can feed up into it. Um, Yeah, I would start, what, what I would really do is drop. If, if I'm being completely honest in this scenario, I'd pull fats down to a bare minimum. Like it's two weeks, three weeks. You just don't need them. Um, I would push some of your carbohydrate over to protein from a satiety standpoint. And I'd probably pull like 40 to 50 grams of carbohydrate uh, at least to get things moving.
1: Interesting. Yeah. That's m- sort of along the lines of what I've done. Um, I've always been like a, a within range of body weight times one um, per pound. What, what am I trying to say? One pound, one gram of protein per pound of body weight kind of guy. Um, which means that like 185, that 185 would be the, the protein that I'm eating. But, um, just in the last two weeks, literally in the last two weeks, uh, I've found myself eating 220 to 240 grams of protein most days. Because now when I go into the kitchen to look for food to eat, it's like I could eat these simpler things that aren't going to fill me up or I could you know, cut this chicken breast and, and grill it up and and eat that. And suddenly I have like 50 grams of protein and a ton of satiety for 200 calories or whatever it is. So yeah, that's been my approach.
0: It's, it really is just, it, it's opportunity cost, right? The worst case scenario with the protein is it becomes an expensive carbohydrate via gluconeogenesis, right? And even if that happens, you're still you know that energy conversion process costs energy, right? And we have the thermic effect of, feed, of, of right. feeding, which protein is the highest. That on top of it, like if if a if a food needs to be eaten, right? Protein in this uh, in this context is there's just the lowest opportunity cost there.
1: Yep. No, I totally agree. And so that's been kind of naturally what's happened. What I haven't done yet in your suggestions is cut those like 50 grams of carbs. And that's kind of where I think the the calorie drop would actually come in, uh, is if I drop 50 to 75 carbs, suddenly I'm at 2300 average instead of 2600 average. And even though that's only 300 calories, it really does make a difference. Like, like it can get things moving and kind of be the impetus to, to create change there. So, um, so tomorrow's my day. I'm going to go one more day hanging out at 25, 2600, see how that goes. And then Uh, tomorrow we would, uh, we would drop those last bit of carbs that you suggested. If, uh, if things don't continue moving.
0: Yeah. And you could always like be a little bit more strategic with your daily, uh, proportioning of those carbohydrate as well. So like making post-workout, your largest carbohydrate feeding, trailing off your carbohydrate as you get further into the day, because you work out in the morning. So, I mean, these are kind of more like your, like kind of little nickel and dime, you know, tricks and stuff. They're not going to have as much of an effect as obviously just pulling the 75 grams of carbs. But it <laughs> right. does add up over over time for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Um, so then going on to training stuff, um, I had – probably one of my least motivated days of training in years. I mean, it's been a really long time since I literally didn't want to train as badly as, as I felt this past Saturday. Um, and I don't know what it was like. It could, if, if sleep was okay, uh, it was really hot and humid. And we went to this thing called a touch a truck, which is this festival for kids in, a. Uh, around where we are, but it basically was the most overwhelming, overstimulating thing that anybody could do. Like I couldn't imagine how it was for kids because I felt overstimulated. It was basically every type of truck or utility car that, 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 that is used in a city. So there was like police cars and fire trucks and tow trucks and. Uh, school buses and I mean, every kind of Im- imaginable truck there is. And they were completely open, doors open, and the kids were just able to go in the truck, climb around the truck, uh, honk the horns, like whatever. So they imagine this scene where there's thousands of kids and a hundred trucks and there's just horns going off around you constantly. And so, like, we're sitting there in this boiling sun. The kids are freaking out because they don't want to wait in lines. They want to bonk the horns. And it was, is, is like, it was awful. So, uh, so we finally get out of there and get home and I'm sitting on the couch like, Oh, and now I'm supposed to do hamstrings. Um, so I, I like really didn't want to do it. I put it on my story and talked about low motivation and, um, I had this thought that maybe like because I'm in week five of my microcycle and I'm into like all of these you know reverse drop sets and partials and, and all these things that maybe there was a fatigue cost that was so high and, and I was becoming you know overreached. Um, but I went in and did the session anyway, and it wasn't great, but I at least matched or even slightly exceeded on on uh, everything. Um, and then still felt like shit afterwards. So it's one of those things where usually you finish training and, and you finish a session and you're like, Oh, I'm so glad I did that. Like, I feel great now, you know? Um, but I was still like, I'm just fucking glad that's over. Like, I don't feel great. I kind of just still feel tired and run down. So then I really started to think that maybe I was, I was overreached. Well, one great night of sleep later. And, uh, a normal day with, with no stress and, and I felt really good on Monday. Um, had one of the best workouts of my entire diet on Monday, improved almost everything, including, uh, my chest movements, which hadn't moved in, in weeks. Like chest are the first thing to go when, when I diet. So, um, somehow I added a rep to, to two of my chest sets and uh, overall just felt really really good um, so so luckily I don't think I'm overreached I don't think that I, I went a little too hard in the paint on intensity techniques and um, in the name of intensity techniques I got to do uh, essentially lengthened partials from the get go for the first time so this has been one of my progressions on these short overload movements where it goes like to failure over a number of weeks and then Partial reps and then a reverse drop set. And now I progressed my 45 degree hip extension into something that is just lengthened partials. So I basically just took the hundred pound dumbbells and did a set of eight reps where the first rep was probably a full rep. And then there was like seven decreasing range of motion partials afterward. And that was insane. Like just as, as a, as, as a, a real hammer, like a true sledgehammer. Cause I talk about reverse drop sets as the hammer, but you know, fuck just start really heavy and don't even get full range of motion. And, and that's the true hammer. So, so I hit two sets of that on the hip extension. And I think that that's a very viable next progression for me on these uh short overload movements, probably like the week before deload um at that point. So, and then just on the the last note of, of deloading, uh, my plan right now is to take a full deload the, uh, when we leave or as I prepare for the photo shoot. So basically Monday 627, um, would be kind of my deload week. Um, uh, one of the things that people do in preparing for photo shoots or getting on stage a lot of times is, they decrease the volume and intensity of their training as a way to kind of shuttle more glycogen into the muscle cells. So the way that the timing is working out and lining up just right here, I think that if I can push through and not, reach this overreach state that I was worried that I was in and I can make it to 627, then that would officially be a deload week. Um, I'll eat up into the show or into my photo shoot rather. And then we have a, uh, a two day drive where we're stopping in Nebraska to get to Wisconsin. So I won't train for three or four days on the back end of that deload. And then we'll get to Wisconsin and I can kind of start a, uh, a new cycle fresh from there. So, so that's the plan going forward. And uh, if you have any thoughts on that, feel free to address. Otherwise, you can totally jump into your updates.
0: Yeah, what I think is going to end up happening, as with everything, uh, is you're going to like have those couple days away, de stress. You're going to clear some inflammation, and then you're going to get the vacation. And you're going to have like one day where you like are a little bit loose with the diet. You have some treats and stuff, and you just like peak that filling out. And you're going to wake up and you're be like, "God damn it, I look fucking amazing <laughs> today." And the photos. I should have done
1: like, that before <laughs> the photo shoot. Yeah, yeah, yeah it happens always. every Man.
0: single time. Yeah, like it really, really is an art like peaking like the coaches that can peak people for shows and stuff like that. Like I've for like the few photo shoots and stuff I've done, I've always been pretty pumped about stuff, but there'll be a day like three or four days later where I look 10 times as good as the day of the photo shoot. Mm -hmm. Son of a bitch.
1: So on that note, um, Birdo and, uh, and Brad Loomis and Helms were on the three DMJ podcast a couple days ago talking about how to optimize peak week. And, you know, we had Birdo on here and I asked him about Pete Week and he basically was like, no, we don't like to peak. We just like to, like, you know, be ready early and then eat up into the show or whatever. But what they were saying is like, like Helms brought up is he's like, look, that's not like realistic. Not everyone can be ready early. So so what's your approach if what's your most common successful approach if if, you know, someone isn't ready early? And uh, both Loomis and Birdo said that they really like to spill someone the night before the show. So you basically eat to the point that you're like, you have too much glycogen in your body, but then over the course of the overnight fast, and then they said they usually won't even have you eat in the morning. You just kind of like wake up looking really good because a lot of that glycogen is kind of distributed over the course of the night. And then if you just kind of walk on in, in there and pump up and, and do your show at, you know, nine, ten, eleven in the morning, whatever it is, you the, the what was spilled before then ends up looking fantastic, you know, sixteen hours later or whatever.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really interesting um like um like angle to come from. I don't think I've ever heard that approach. Uh, I feel like I would be super scared, you know, from both of the, especially as a client right Like, oh no, we're going to spill you on purpose the night before. And then it'll, (laughs) it'll kind of like work itself back in by the time you get on stage. But of course, like those guys, uh, they have it, they have their, their shit super dialed in. I would trust, you know, anything they would say in that, on that.
1: And I'm sure they tested it with the client, like in a refeed prior, like weeks prior to see how their body would respond, how quickly it clears the glycogen and stuff like that.
0: Exactly. All right, cool. Well, what's going on in your world, dude? Cool. I'll start on the business side of things. So uh, I am very, very, by the time this episode comes out, it'll be about a, a week after, but there's always the way the Instagram algorithm works. People don't check their emails, different things. fit falls through the cracks. The single most requested feature for my done-for-you client check-in system, which is the body measurements sheet is complete. It is shipped. It is out. The tutorials are up. If you are someone who previously purchased it, you get access to that for free. It is in your email. You just have to log in to the straker.co site with your credentials that are in your email at some point and go re-grab a copy. I also put up together a tutorial for if you already have a customized version and you don't want to recreate all of that, I have a step-by-step guide on how you can recreate this specific feature um, with some tips and tricks. So that's super, super cool. Last thing there, uh, I am increasing the price on the check-in system. I finally decided to listen to everyone who has told me it is going from $67 up to $99, where it will stay for, I think, forever. Um I don't like to speak in absolutes but uh this it, I will take br- a little bit of a break from building features and stuff like that uh cuz it's I mean it's up to like nine sheets as is and people get a little bit overwhelmed but I am very confident saying for you know the less than the price of one coaching client will pay you for one month I give you basically 4 years of my work of building it. Um so that's super cool. And then my fat loss and muscle gain models, which are a very similar kind of like sister product to the check-in system have been quite the success. So I am really, really pumped about how they turned out. It has been a very, very valuable tool for, for me with my coaching clients to help us basically forecast our periodizations or really when someone's like, Hey, I'm turning 40 in 12 weeks. I want to get to 12% body fat. Like what does that look like? And we run the numbers and I'm like, yeah, it's not going to happen. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, so it really just helps with like forecasting and estimating timelines, estimating body fat percentages and those sorts of things. So you can find both of those, uh, on my website and my socials, all that sort of good stuff. And then some really cool things happening on the business development side, nothing that I can really quite share yet, but I'm really, really excited about some of the things that are coming. And I had a note here that it seems to me, I feel like this with business, things come in like things ebbs and flows. Things will be super, super silent. I feel like for a couple months and then overnight, I'll get like a bunch of coaching applications, new business things. People reach out to me for different projects and stuff, and I'm in the like the latter stage of that where everything seems to be firing at once, which is really, really cool. Um, those are my updates. Love that, um, business type stuff. I am really, really excited about my training and and food. I'm locked in with my food prep here in, in macro kitchen, who is doing, um, basically my food prep, which I'm really, really pumped about. They're just giving me bake, like bulk basic items. I'm getting like chicken in a few different formats, um sweet potato fries, a turmeric rice, a jasmine rice, um carrots, bro. they're just giving me like I'm just hey, just just give me like lean chicken and various, you know, carbohydrate and vegetables and they're just like killing it. I'm super super pumped about it. It's like literally mindless. Um and then I'm just really pumped about training like Alex Bush from physique development is doing my training. Like I said, we're kind of hitting a groove there. I'm really starting to like push training and just having a lot of fun with it. And I am kind of artificially riding this, like, I'm calling it this like pseudo recomp phase. I'm in like a slight calorie deficit. I'm still eating like 2,800 approximately, like 2,750 to like 2,850 um, per day. But like, I'm getting leaner and like reclaiming some of the muscle tissue that I have like, I necessarily like lost, but has whatever, you know, deconditioned over the couple months where I haven't been training as hard. I'm really just reaccumulating what I already had, but I'm riding like the wave of like, I'm looking better like every like handful of days. And I'm just really, really pumped about that. Um, so I know Hell yeah. obviously that phase doesn't last too long. Um, but it is fun when you are in the, the middle of it. Uh, and it's just, I'm just really, really enjoying like, eating really quality foods you know prioritizing sleep getting great nights of sleep waking up early uh and just getting back to training and like work and life is really really fun right now so i'm just grateful and pumped about it
1: yeah you're in uh because you haven't been like super committed between like your back injury and like traveling to bali and all this stuff like even if you did lose like a little something now is like an opportunity where you will see those changes because you might be adding back just by being more consistent and being more like accurate with the way that you're doing things. So um that's super cool. Are you still hanging out in like the four to six rep range on most stuff?
0: Everything is five to eight. So um okay. how a lot of things look or it's like, I'll for like a press. So today I had like, my, my main pressing movement, which was like an incline dumbbell bench, it was uh, six six four, four. and then I had the like bilateral chest um, supported um, pull down again, six, six, four four. Mm-hmm. And it is fun getting to like really load up weights on those and just try really, really hard. And then as I get into like some auxiliary stuff, like I had some like cable flies. those are at like sets of eight. I have some like dips at like sets of six. so still like I'm able to like mm-hmm. load them up pretty good. Uh, And they're not quite like super low reps, but um, I do have a little bit of more traditional stuff. Like I have conventional deadlifts in my program, um, which I haven't done in a really, really long time. And what's fun there is it's one of those things like because I'm just kind of reclaiming what I once previously had, like I can add weight on the bar week over week, which is fun again. The not fun part is you start like week one, you're like, there's not a lot of weight on this bar and it's fucking heavy and my back hurts <laughs> <laughs> sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but it is cool. I'm really, really excited to just like give someone else the reins. And I'm like, hey, I'm just mm-hmm. here to learn and be a client, you yeah. know, to take me where you think we should go sort of thing.
1: And then on the, the four rep sets of like a, a chest supported pull down, what's your RIR? Like with that in that one to three
0: range that you mentioned last week? Yeah. So we're at like basically a, a, an, an RIR of one. On all those okay.
1: actions. So it's a four rep set of, of pull downs where you could do five. I mean, that's a really heavy pull down weight. Yeah,
0: what's, I, I, I should video of the setup I have. I have this thing so fucking rigged because I, it's like I have obviously the chest supported thing. I need to wedge a weight in between the bench I pull over and the structure right. so that when I try and get in, it doesn't pull me closer to it. And then I have a, a medicine ball on the seat to get me up high enough so that I have like I'm yeah. lined up right but then I also need the weight of that medicine ball to help the bench in place and then as I like go through my warm up sets I have to keep bringing over like 20 kilo plates and stacking them on the bottom to keep the thing from tipping over it's it's yeah. getting rather ridiculous
1: and it it doesn't pull your body up like as you're, as you're extending and, and, and contracting. You don't feel your body kind of jumping up and down off the
0: medicine ball at all. It does a little bit, but I have my feet planted in the back of the bench. Like my heels kind of like in. wedged under yeah, to like yeah. help me brace and, but I really need to like, I grab it and I like swing over and use my momentum to like get it down mm-hmm. enough so I can like kind of wiggle into position. But yeah, it's. It's a lot to get set up for sure. It would. Yeah. um, I think in like a week or two, I'm going to have to ask like a, like a random gym bro like, Hey, can you come help me get this into place?
1: (laughs) I feel like the simple solution for me, because it is like just so dramatic what you have to do there. And, and even if I did all that, I still think that it, for a set of that many of that few reps, it would pull me out of my seat. Like I think I would. Um, I think I would get pulled out just because I have a really strong back. But uh, you know, single arm like that might be something to propose to to Alex is, hey, dude, if I can use you know fifty five percent of the weight here and do these with one arm, this kind of mitigates a lot of this
0: crap that I'm having to do right now. <laughs> yeah, especially for the lower reps because it's yeah, they're talking you know whatever, you not know, ten yeah. seconds instead of foot five or something like that. You know, it's pretty pretty small for sure. Yep. Yep. Cool. All right. Well, is that all you got for updates? Yeah. Oh, last one. Oh, man. So this, in my program, I have the, the front foot wedge, rear foot elevated dumbbell split squat, which is a movement I really, really like. It is so damn hard to perfect the setup. I feel like every time it changes a little bit. And like when you nail it, when it's perfect, it's like a, it's probably one of the best quad exercises you can do. It is so hard to perfect that setup. I feel like I'm always slightly off. There's like one little thing or the distance between my feet is too close. And then it like I'm hinging at the hip too much and I'm not, I mean, I'm in like, I know uh, by, right by the time that I like perfect it, we're going to rotate and it's not going to be it anymore. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. But, uh, it's just been, it's been frustrating the hell out of me, uh, to try and get it right.
1: Do you take pictures and by chance even measure like some sort of way the distance between, you know, the front wedge and the back wedge? I did this
0: week. um, I did this week and then tried to like film it. But of course, I'm like just out of frame uh, how Mm -hmm. I set the camera up. But it's. I got to like reach out to a couple – you know I'm going to reach out to is Jeremiah Bear because he's like six Mm -hmm. foot three or something like that. I'm like, how do you set this up? Because it's one of those things like when you get the longer femurs, it fucks with things a little bit because that back leg I think needs to be elevated even higher. It does. But I'm not or
1: the front foot
0: does so that
1: there's room for the back leg to come down. There's some sort of balance between the two of those. Like I watched Birdo do them on his story and he doesn't elevate either leg. He only uses the wedge on both the front and the back leg. And he's still getting his thigh below parallel, which is insane to me, because like if I just use them with no elevation,
0: I it would look as if I was doing like a, a quarter squat basically at the bottom, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And one thing that I always remember from when I was in Arizona, I did have the, the, the setup perfected. My back leg had to be higher than I thought so that it would bias my weight forward to put, mm-hmm. hold more of my weight in that front foot. Yeah. Um, because when I wouldn't do that, I would notice I would get more of like a, uh, like a hip stimulus or even like a little bit more of like a glute, um, mm-hmm. st- st- um, stimulus there. But yeah. Yeah, well, I'm going fi- to I'm going to perfect it and I'm going to film it and, you know, send it out. So I'll figure it out eventually. <laughs> I like it. Cool. You ready to jump into some of these questions? Yeah, man. Let's kick this first one over to you. So this question is training with slow, perfect reps with a stretch contract versus fast explosive reps with more weight. What are your thoughts there?
1: Yeah. So this guy then sent a second part and basically was like, just to make sure you understand, like these fast explosive reps still are fully controlled and like they're not, you know, ballistic or whatever. So uh, I thought that was like an important caveat, too. But um, so basically science says that as long as you are controlling your eccentric, the lowering phase of the movement, it really doesn't matter Um, like you can do a one and a half ish second um, eccentric or like a three or four second eccentric and it doesn't make a huge difference. Science does say that it is very important that we try to lift the weight with as much speed as possible. Um, but I think that's the part that gets a little bit ambiguous because when you're at the bottom of a rep and then you think about creating as much speed as you can out of the bottom. What most often happens is that there's a bunch of compensation occurring, um, as you're launching yourself out of the bottom of a rep. So you can think about this in the sense of like, uh, any squat pattern movement, but like if you truly got to the bottom of a squat pattern movement and then you didn't use any momentum to get up out of the bottom and you just tried to use essentially your quads to stand up, the failure would actually occur at the bottom of the movement. But what really happens in reality is we get to the bottom of a movement and then we use everything we have in our power to try and accelerate up and then the sticking point where we fail is usually going to be right around parallel, somewhere in like the middle of that squat, right? So you can kind of see that as an example of the two different styles of 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 ascending uh, with the weight. And so I think that there's probably utility in both. I think they're both probably pretty effective. Um, I think the like part of the question asked explosive reps with more weight. And my question back would be if you're using more weight, then there's potentially a higher fatigue cost. And if you're exploding out of the bottom, like if I'm doing a squat where I'm exploding up and launching, then it's probably not. As specific to my quads, like the quads are still doing a shit ton of work, but you're probably also, you know, using a little bit of glute and some hip um, to get out of that bottom position and launch yourself up. So, so now you have the question of, well, I'm using more weight, which means there's a higher fatigue cost and I'm recruiting more muscles to use more weight. So there's less of like an acute stimulus. So like Do I think that there's a massive difference in in like you're going to get bigger 10 years from now if you lift one style over the other? And my answer is no. Like, I think both styles over the course of time will get you to your goal. Um, I think when you look at it a little more nuanced and you look at what the fatigue cost is versus the stimulus um, that you can achieve from a style and performance of of rep execution. um, There's the the the. The way where you're a little more specific to the muscles is just going to give you a, um, a better return on your investment if hypertrophy uh, is your goal.
0: Yeah, I generally agree with, with almost everything you said there, or most of everything, I should say. The one question I had, um, intentionally slowing down your concentrics. Do you know? No, definitely not. Because that's kind of what like training with slow, perfect reps, like obviously the eccentric, we want to be under control, but I don't think you want to like purposefully slow down your concentric portion.
1: No. So, yeah. So, so when I talk about that example of trying to get out of the bottom of a squat in both examples, whether you're launching yourself up, essentially flooring the gas pedal, or if you're just like. You know, gently pushing on the gas pedal with this idea that it's it's going to get floored. You're just not going to go from like no pressure to all the pressure in one fell swoop. It's going to be like a a gradual press where eventually it gets floored, but it's just not launching into in that position. So both of them have the intent uh, maximal concentric intent Right You're trying to lift the weight As fast as you can In both circumstances It's just one of them Is so explosive That it's recruiting A bunch of other muscles To help you get Through that And the other one Is is trying to lift As fast as possible But uh, more specific To just The one piece Of the muscle That you're trying to use Or the one muscle You're yeah, trying to yeah, use
0: Yeah pretty spot on Really just The the potential downside Of the launching Is you kind of Throw yourself out Of optimal positioning To change your stimulus, yeah,
1: and you recruit other muscles that you're not intending to do, which therefore has like a higher fatigue cost and all these different
0: things. The only, the last thing I I would say on this is there may be some some certain movements where you do want to intentionally um, move ever so slightly slower through a, a portion so that you're not creating so much momentum that you're not under that much tension through other parts of the range of motion.
1: Yeah. yeah, That's more or less what I'm saying. And I think yeah. it certainly applies to some movements more than others, but I think it can apply to all movements generally. And then even more to something like a, a, a leg curl where the first 15 degrees are going to be more calf. Um, like that's a super, super specific example, but I think like just generally it applies to the way you perform movements and across all movements.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think so.
1: Cool. I'll send this one to you and then we can discuss. But uh, what courses do you feel a trainer should do or the best ways to educate himself?
0: So this is something that I feel rather strongly on. However, I'm sure I am probably of a lesser common opinion. I personally think the best education and knowledge you are going to get is going to be from like private organizations, businesses and coaches. The larger Education curriculums get I think the more kind of watered down um, They get Uh, That being said If you're someone who's like entering the space You need like a big cert Licensure whatever To kind of get your foot in the door But from there I wouldn't go from like Huge company A who I have my first cert To like huge company B I would probably go who are the best people In the space who is really Moving the space forward Um, And then going into that sort of thing I know this is a a conversation that we talk about a lot But it's like, hey, I'm a brand new personal trainer I'm going to go to like maybe ISSN And get my, you know, entry level trainer Number one type certification Now do I go to, fuck, what's the other one? The then NASM, right? Am I going to go to NASM and get like another entry level cert no, you go to fucking N1 and CASM and get like a, a world-class actual understanding of everything. So it's like get your foot in the door, then you go find the best people and go learn directly from them. That's what I would recommend.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I 100% agree. I think that like what you're basically saying uh in like a bird's eye view is that uh you get the general education almost like you would in like your bachelor's degree or – Whatever. And then after you finish that, you can be like, OK, well, this is the part of this that I'm interested in. So, you know, I really want to learn more about programming and training or I want to learn more about nutrition and these types of things. Or I want or maybe it's both or, you know, I really want to focus on the biomechanics of movement or I really want to learn more about energy systems or like whatever these different things are that you find extremely interesting within the framework of fitness as a whole uh, health and fitness. Um, then you can get a little more specific and, and search out those certifications uh, from the more, the smaller organizations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Um, And I agree with N1, of course, for, for like a hypertrophy uh, training programming perspective. N1 is great. Um, OPEX is always the one that I suggest for like more of a functional fitness uh, crossfitty style. One As as I went through both of those. So um, those would be my advice there. Yep.
0: I would agree. Um, this one will kick over to you, Brian. So this is a, it's a little bit of a long winded question, but it's full of context, which is really, really cool. Do you think there is a per session training stimulus that must be achieved within that given session, uh, in order to see gains in the context of hypertrophy? So as you become more advanced, do you think there is a necessary amount of volume one must do within a given session rather than spreading it out? then with an example, is it possible one could experience faster gains by doing three sets in one session rather than one set spread over three sessions of the week? What are your thoughts here, Brian?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, and I, the, my first thought was to think back to something I read in weightology a while ago. And I, man, I, because our podcast is at 6 AM, I didn't get a chance to look this up, but as I was falling asleep last night, it was like turning in my brain. So I'm sorry. I don't know, uh, if James Krieger actually did this study, this, if it was even a meta analysis in my brain. What I think is that it was James Krieger that did a meta analysis, but I I could be completely wrong. It could just be James Krieger reviewing something in weightology, but essentially what this did was it assessed whether there is in fact a minimum training volume per session and a maximum. And I believe the reason I think it was a meta analysis, because I think it was a a study of studies that found that the low end uh, of stimulus for a muscle group in a session is around three sets and that the high end is around 10 sets. And of course there's variability there um, based on the individual. But when you look at that, um, Essentially, if you're somebody that needs call it 18 sets a week for a muscle group, then you have the option of you could do it nine sets over two different sessions each. Right. To get to 18, you could go six and 12. Um, if you're going to do six sessions a week, like say you have six full body sessions, you could do three sets in each session. But alternatively, let's look at someone different and say this person now. Only has eight sets that they need for a muscle group, well that person couldn't split it over four full body sessions because now they're only getting two sets per session. so this person would either do it like as a bro split like some the the way we look at frequency now in in the literature is that it's just a way to distribute volume, so you don't actually need to go to two times a week for a body part unless uh, unless you're going to exceed the 10 sets per session piece. So if this person is doing eight, eight sets in a week, they could opt to do it in like a bro split manner and do all eight sets on one day. They could also opt to do it four and four or six and two, um, Six and two, again, I guess it's to the two would be like it wouldn't fit into like kind of what the minimum the minimum capacity is. But with that said, that's kind of the way I split mine. Like I have six sets on one day for quads and hams and then I have two sets on the other day for quads and hams Um, that actually just increased to three last week. But for the first few weeks, it was two. Um, So, I mean. Do I think that I'm getting no benefit because I'm I'm doing two sets on one of the days? And and the answer is no, but I'm like purposefully trying to get less there. It's almost just like a, a touch-up, sort of, because I have this one big day where all the stuff is occurring, and then the other day is just this little like touch-up before I get back to the big day again. Um, but to circle that all back to your question, I, I do think that there is probably a a minimum. Um, I think that that minimum depends on how hard you're pushing your sets. Cause like you could easily just say that three sets is an arbitrary number, but is that three sets to three RIR? Because if that's three sets to three RIR, then maybe one set to zero RIR with some partials is the same stimulus as three sets to three RIR. So um there's so much ambiguity there. And when you look at these meta analyses um, from like someone like Krieger, who I know trains with RIR and stuff like that. Like my assumption is that when you're looking at the literature and even if it says these people are training to failure based on what we know about the ambiguity of failure in the literature, my assumption would be that it's probably around to RIR. So um, just kind of going down that rabbit hole. I personally think one or two sets to like failure with some intensity techniques would be completely fine. And if you're going to use RIR, then probably three or four sets would be a good minimum uh, for a specific muscle group in a session.
0: I'm definitely going to really lean on on Brian uh, on this question. I, these are some of these things that I feel like it's really hard to quantify here um, because It really, really does depend. So for example, like part of the question says, as you become more advanced, you think there is a necessary amount of volume one must do within that given session. As you become more advanced, your ability to contract those, those muscle, those those muscle tissues and specifics improves. So like me here in, in 2022 at 34 years old, I can get much better stimulus out of Three sets of like a let's say a very targeted bicep curl than I could five years ago because I have just become more advanced I understand things better. I understand lengthen versus shortened and, and that sort of thing It's hard to create apples to apples because things change as you get more advanced And then in the last part of the question, you know Could you experience faster gains by doing three sets in one session Rather than one set spread out over three days of the week, probably not. But for some reason, my – what what comes to mind is like let's put you – let's warm you up, put you on a hack squat. You have one see God set, right? Let's say you can get 18 reps. But then if we were to give you a second, hey, go see God again, you only get like 11 reps and then on the third one, you get like seven If we give you two days and you come back on Wednesday and I'm like, hey, once you do another see God set on the hack squat, you can probably get like 16 or 17 reps. So if we were to use... You're not recovered. Yeah, you're recovered. You've had 48 hours, you know. So if that were splitting three sets over three days, you end up doing, you know, what ended up being like 18, 12 and seven, you go like 18, 17, 16. That's a fair amount of, you know, more stuff accumulated. But it also comes into the factor of like, what is your energy utilization, right? Like, where's your... Carbohydrate recompensation, how much muscle glycogen do you have? What are I mean, it's really, it's a rabbit hole, really. So, I mean, these sorts of things, I would just test, see how you feel. You know, what what is your current limitations around recovery? Pushing yourself, like maybe you're not pushing yourself really, really hard to, to, to these sets. I would explore that. But, I mean, it really is a can of worms, but I, I do think what is the most tangible takeaway advice i think brian covered really really well yeah
1: no and then just really good point on the lengthen and shorten too because like the apples to apples thing i mean if, if you're just arbitrarily saying is three sets enough for one muscle group in a session or you know is one enough it's like are you doing three sets of lying leg curls and one set of rdl because like one set of rdl could could fuck you up More than three sets of leg curls could. But looking at this example, you know, you'd think that three sets must be more stimulus because it's three sets. So um, so muscle length certainly plays a role in there, too. Definitely.
0: Okay, Um, let's kick this one over to you to start again. So from a beginner standpoint, would it be more beneficial to focus on the big lifts? If so, what role would machines and cables play in a beginner's workout plan?
1: Yeah, I I have a few thoughts on this. I was actually just on uh, with Dave and Abel uh, two days ago. It has the episode hasn't come out yet, but uh, we were talking about uh, the topic of minimalist training and what that brought us back to was kind of discussing some of the ways that we got started with training, especially for me, how uh, I've mentioned before on the podcast that. In the late nineties, I stumbled into a forum called power and bulk where a a guy named Paul Carter was kind of a big name in the group and, you know, providing advice for people. And he basically told me to choose a, a leg, a push and a pull and do that on one day and then rest two or three days and choose a leg, a push and a pull and come back and do that again and just basically repeat those two workouts over the course of time with rest days in between until I was big and strong. Um, I thought that was great advice at the time. He has since told me that that wasn't good advice and that he would go back on it. Uh, but that's a story for another day. Because I think it was great advice. Um, I, I do think there's something to learning those movements. His argument, um, as to why that isn't great advice for a beginner is because of how complex those movements are. So you have a like a back squat and a deadlift and a bench press and overhead press and pull ups and rows, basically the big six movements and they all involve extending at multiple joints. So none of them are isolation movements, which makes them complex. You need a lot of stability to be able to like squat and deadlift properly. A lot of core control, pelvic control, stuff like that, which a lot of beginners don't have. Um, so what I think now, and I kind of just came up with this idea when I was on the podcast with Dave and Abel. But I kind of think now that the best route for a beginner is to choose six basic lifts exactly like the six that i listed except to not be so tied to them being barbell movements so like what if instead of it being back squat deadlift bent over row pull up overhead press and bench press what if you just chose six machine cable or dumbbell other form of movement that just fit your body really well, but still fit those movement patterns. So like, look, thinking about me, you know, maybe it's pendulum squat, RDL, chest supported T bar row, iliac lat pull down, uh, anterior delt dumbbell press and uh, dumbbell fly press. So those are like the exact same six movement patterns that I listed earlier. They're just done with different implements Um, that fit my body better. And so as a beginner, you may not know, like you're a beginner, you're like, well, why wouldn't I use barbells? Like barbells are cool. Like, you know, I don't know that a pendulum squat fits me better than a back squat does. Um, and that, that's fair too. Like, like maybe you do try it, but maybe you're not so tied to those specific lifts that like if you do start doing one of them and you find that you don't have the stability or the pelvic control or like you have compensations occurring, like maybe it's not the end of the world if instead of back squatting, you decide to go into a hack squat or a leg press. Um So anyway, that, that would be my thoughts on that. I think that... If, uh, you don't need to be doing a bunch of isolation movements. You don't need to be doing a bunch of curls and a bunch of lateral raises and uh, worrying about lining up joint angles with cables and, and all that stuff. But you should pick movements that feel great for you. And if it's, that's the barbell movements, then then awesome. And if it's not, then I think you can sub in the movements that would feel good that work, that are similar movement patterns.
0: I think for me, I would have to say like a, a bit of a blend between the two my my fear of going like with the ladder route is i i do agree the barbell movements are really hard to to learn for a beginner but you but you learn a lot around like mechanics and how your body operates and stuff i think if you were to like just put a a beginner in a pendulum squat like you just your the concept of balance in foot pressure and things like you, you don't inherently learn these because they don't matter because the machine will kind of force you here. Whereas like, if you don't have your foot pressure, right. In like a, in a barbell back squat, like you're going to fall the fuck over, you know? So it's like, I, I, I don't feel very confident answering it in any way, but I think a bit of a, a, a blend, like a dumbbell, right. Bench press, I think uh, could be fantastic, right. Cause you're getting the same basic thing, but you're learning, Hey, you're not fixed, you're not locked into like a fixed movement pattern, but I, yeah, I agree. I don't think you need like a, a barbell overhead press, but some, some basic form of like the six movements are six, six basic movement patterns. But yeah, I mean, that one's really, really hard. Cause I feel like you get your ass kicked learning those barbell movements, but you learn around like moving your body through space and using balance and, and different things. So that one's really, really hard, but I think there could be some really, really basic like machines that could be fantastic. Like a chest supported row would be an absolutely fantastic one. Things like that for sure.
1: Yep. Totally. I agree. Yeah. I basically think the, the main finishing thought here is just that you don't need to be spending a bunch of time on single joint isolation movements and that you should pick the big compounds that work a lot of stuff and just focus on getting strong on those. Um, but I'm not super tied to to exactly what those big compounds are or what device you use to, to implement them. Um, cool. Well, I'm going to, I just moved one of these, uh, nutrition questions up because I feel like there's just so many training questions in a row. So I'm going to give you a chance to answer one here. Um, so if one's diet consists of beef and chicken, would adding fat from nuts be beneficial?
0: So I really, really like how you framed this question. So thank you, uh, listener for framing it and such would (laughs) adding fats from nuts be beneficial, right? I say yes. And here's why we have, a few different classifications of types of fats. The fat coming from animal products, namely like beef and chicken, is going to be overwhelmingly saturated, fat based. The easiest way to identify saturated fats are they are stable at room temperature. So think about when you put uh you cook some chicken or you cook some beef, you put it back in the fridge, you pull it out again to have more, and here's the the fat's all solidified, looks like some gross fucking weird beef jello combination. Uh, or coconut oil in, in, in the cabinet in, in the wintertime. It's going to be a solid. The types of fats, that uh, in nuts are going to be largely either monounsaturated or polyunsaturated fats. So they have different properties. So for example, your omega-3 fatty acids are going to be a form of mon, or sorry, polyunsaturated fats. Each has its kind of different pluses and minuses, uh, I, what I do personally, what I do with my clientele and what I generally recommend, there are people that are going to say, hey, saturated fats are the absolute devil, never have them. And then there's going to be people on the complete opposite side of the thing that say, no, they're like, you know, literally Jesus reincarnate. You should have all the saturated fats. I follow a higher protein diet. I do with my clients as well. Just as a byproduct of that higher protein diet, there will be an adequate amount of saturated fat in the diet just as a byproduct of the protein beef, chicken we're eating. With the amount of fats left in the diet, I generally recommend getting more of that from your poly and monounsaturated sources, from things like nuts, seeds, extra virgin out, Extra virgin olive, olive oil, avocado, those sorts of things. So you end up at the end of the day with a, with a bit of a blend, um, not super, super high in one, super, super low in the other. But I generally, unless someone is having like a very, very high fat diet, um, I generally am not having people purposefully take in large amounts of saturated fat. So to kind of wrap up, yes, I would 100% say that adding fats from nuts and other fat sources that are poly and unsaturated would be beneficial. Do you um,
1: have any caution or thought around the fact that a bunch of nuts are really high in omega sixes?
0: Yeah. So I generally am having, I don't have clients eat peanuts. Um, I'm going to push towards either walnuts or Brazil nuts in like eight out of ten cases, almonds I'm fine with. Uh, I use chronometer with my clientele. We can see their omega six to omega three ratio and things like chia seeds, um, ground flaxseed or flaxseed. They're going to be higher in ALA, which doesn't convert well, but it still is an omega three. Um, I will generally try and get people to like a f- five to one ratio. That's not even great, but like a three to one or four to one, or supplementing an omega three, which helps. Close that gap between the two. Cool.
1: Um, sweet. I have like 15, maybe 20 minutes left. So let's try and get through the rest of these. I maybe mean, have five or six questions left. Um, so this person's asking for examples of metabolic training. And we actually did an entire episode on this, didn't we? Called metabolic training. Um, so I'll just be really, really quick here. Basically, the two types of metabolic training are uh, systemic and local. So you can kind of think of systemic training as training your heart to to be better basically systemically you're trying to improve your work capacity and get better at breathing converting these different uh, things to usable oxygen etc um and then local Metabolic training is going to focus specifically on one individual muscle and trying to increase the work capacity of that muscle. Um, so you can kind of think of systemic training as almost like circuit training. It really is is um It's not cardio at all. It's it's basically lifting weights, but taking shorter rest periods than you usually would and and alternating between big muscle groups. So you might go from like a quad to a back to a chest movement um, with relatively short rest and then take a longer rest. So that would be more of like a circuit style systemic type thing. And then a local metabolic training would be uh, like something like a same muscle group superset, which we talked about a ton in last week's episode. Or something along the lines of uh, like an eight by eight, which Vince Garanda popularized, I think, in the 80s, which is essentially you take your 15 rep max on a lift and you'll do it for sets of eight reps until you reach one failure point at the end, which is usually somewhere between six and eight sets. Um, And then. The other thing with metabolic training is it's usually done primarily with short overload movements so that you're not um, trying to create a metabolic effect with movements that are going to create a ton of damage and systemic fatigue. Um, So, yeah, those would kind of be the main principles. And then I would refer you back to the uh, to the episode on metabolic training, which was two or three months ago, I believe.
0: Yeah, I don't have anything Uh, to add on that one. That's Brian. it there.
1: Yeah. So the next question is, is asking about optimal quad hypertrophy in two times a week programming. And I'm just going to assume that he doesn't mean he's training only twice a week, but that he's training quads twice a week. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I, w- I would say so. I think the, the frequency conversation is really interesting because I, I I don't, I don't think that I could get the same amount of stimulus out of out of quads in one day as I could over two. I I think the <clears throat> excuse me I think the central fatigue would be way too high. And I, I just I think it after so many sets, like I, I can't produce anything meaningful anymore. I I'd probably get sick. I had that period where I was training legs like really, really hard about a year and a half ago. I was getting sick regularly after my leg training sessions. I think there's just a cap on you're done for the day, dude. Like you need to just come back and get, add more volume. And once you're mostly recovered sort of thing. Yeah,
1: I agree. I think, I mean, like my volume's low enough that like I'm doing eight set, eight or nine sets a week right now for quads. So I have like six on one day and three on another at the moment. Um, but I, I, I think, you know, depending on what your volume needs are, kind of depends how you split that up, um, if we assume that you're like a normal person and say you need 12 to 16 sets, you could easily just go six to eight sets, uh, per, per session. And, um, and there's a number of ways you can splice that up that it would all be effective. Like you could have more of uh, a focus on short overloading, uh, on one of the days and a little more focus on some of the damaging movements on another day. Um, you may want like a day that is uh, a leg day that's a little more glute dominant or hip dominant and a day that's a little more quad dominant. So if you split it up that way, kind of like the way that I do, uh, then you'll have a lot of your damaging quad work on one of the days and then maybe you'll have just a one or two smattering of like some le- least less fatiguing movements on another day. or maybe even you know you put like um, a glute focused leg press or a glute focused split squat. On your hamstring hip day, but you're still going to get plenty of quad stimulus doing like a glute focused leg press or a glute focused split squat. So, um, I think, you know, how you, how you arrange that really there, there isn't like an optimal way. There's just a number of, of great ways that can work. And, uh, and you kind of need to find what works best for you. Probably as much psychologically as, as physiologically too. Cause like for me with leg training, it certainly is as much psychological, like the way that it's split up and like not creating a ton of anxiety going into sessions, but being more excited about the session, um, is hugely important when it comes to quads.
0: I agree. A hundred percent.
1: Cool. Do you want to jump to a nutrition one real quick?
0: Yeah, let's do that.
1: After 12 weeks cut better to do a maintenance phase or start a lean bulk?
0: So one thing that I will, I will say with this and something that I think people who I oftentimes think people jump the gun a little bit of a lean bulk. If we think about it, right, we've all, we all got introduced to training when we were younger because we wanted that like physique or whatever. You're at the end of a 12 week cut. You finally have that lean physique. Do you really want it to go away in three weeks, four weeks when you start the lean bulk? So I'm kind of like in the camp of like, hang out there. Like you just busted your ass for 12 weeks to get this cut. Like enjoy that leaner physique for a little bit. Do your due diligence of making sure food levels are appropriate or adequate so that you're not still dieting. You're doing something inadvertently that you, you don't want to, but it can be fine to just, Hey, introduce food enough. That's going to stop your continued loss, support training, support, you know, maybe reestablishing some, um, to whatever de- degree of diminished, Uh, testosterone sex hormone thyroid hormone levels and just enjoy being lean for maybe eight weeks 12 weeks and then from there you can start your your kind of lean gain period after that but I I have done this in the past as well where I've kind of rushed it a little bit and then you're like fuck I just worked so hard to get lean and now I look you know don't even look like I lift again you know a month and a half later sort of thing so that's what I would recommend and then see how you feel from there
1: yeah, I don't have a whole lot to add to that one. Um, cool. That was quick. So the next one I'll take here. Uh, the person is asking, uh, short, intense, full body sessions almost every day, like two sets per body part in different splits. Um, and I think that this, I would refer you back to the, the prior question we answered in this segment where we were talking about the minimum volume per session. Cause I think that that can add some context for you. And then I think that that this is like a viable a viable way of training. Uh Meno Henselmans has been training this way f- for maybe a decade, at least half a decade. Um and he believes he's making progress and he's a super experienced, you know, veteran of the industry. So, um I think if this is something that works for you psychologically, then I see no reason that you couldn't come in, come in and do this. You just have to like what really The thing with full body training every day is you have to organize it in like a a manner where there's not as not a ton of overlap. And it's really difficult to do two lengthened lower body movements in back to back days. Like even if that's going from like hack squat one day to RDL the next day, but on a even uh, more quad specific basis, like imagine trying to go from hack squat one day to like leg press the next day to like back squat the day after that. Um if you more likely it would be like hack squat one day leg extension, then maybe a day off of quads where you're still doing the rest of the full body. And then, you know, there's another quad exercise the day after that. So, so just because you're organizing it in full body sessions, doesn't mean you need to hit every muscle group every day. Uh, remember that your biceps get hit with back work. So maybe you can skip bicep work on a day with a lot of back work or your triceps get hit with like some chest and some shoulder work. So maybe you don't need to hit your triceps as much. Um, so I would just keep that in mind and um, and um I, I think it's a totally viable way of training.
0: I think if it's – I don't think it's – I don't think it's probably optimal but if you're someone who likes a lot of like variation and you want to train almost every day and you're like, hey, I'm going to do a lesser volume. I want a larger variation of total movements in my week because it's just fun or different. Like I think, again, like Brian said, it's it's totally viable. It just requires a little bit more of strategic planning because of the – your recovery between lifting that body part again is, is lesser. So if you end up with too much lengthened, you know, biased movements, you're going to get really fucking sore. Yeah.
1: yeah, it's never worked for me. I've tried full body um, like th- full body three times a week works really well for me, but I've tried full body uh, four or five, six times a week. And it never works for me, um, as much psychologically as physiologically, like, um, some people like it cause they, they say they never have to have a leg day, like a true leg day. They just like kind of sprinkle legs in there. To me, it felt like every day was leg day. Cause every fucking day I went in there, there was some big movement that was going to demolish me and like psychologically, I just couldn't do it. So, um, to each their own, you know, um, okay. This I think is actually, we still have three more questions. Uh, this person likes benching for hypertrophy. I'm assuming barbell benching. Um, but it seems like everyone on the internet is saying it's terrible question mark. Um, so I, uh, I actually think that benching with a barbell is fine if that's going to be your lengthened overload movement. Um, I think the, there's two reasons probably why people are saying that the, three reasons why people are saying the barbell bench is not great for hypertrophy. One is because everything goes through these shifts. And for so many years, barbell benching was like the only movement for hypertrophy. And it's, it's taken the same course as kind of the back squat where it's like, Hey, it's not bad for hypertrophy, but you don't have to do it. And a lot of people take this. You don't have to do it to mean that somehow it's not good. And that's not true. It it just, it's just you don't have to do it. You can get chest gains without it. So second, the reason that people say it's not good is because it doesn't have any adduction, which means that it doesn't move the arm across the body, which is the natural line of push for the pec fibers um, around the rib cage. So that's why I said it would primarily be great for like a lengthened overload movement choice, because the the, the majority of the tension you're getting on the chest is going to be the bottom half of the range of motion, um, because... You would want a movement like you could do with dumbbells. You would want that to come across the chest more. But even when you look at dumbbells bench pressing, you still lose tension at the top of the rep. Like once your joints are all stacked and your elbows are locked and your the dumbbells are sitting with your arms straight, there isn't any tension on the chest at that point. Same with a barbell. So a dumbbell is really only, you know, a little bit better than the barbell because it allows you to come across the body. But both of them lack tension at the top. Which is why then we have movements like short position overload, like the um, uh, the press around movement, because if you're going to try to get the pec short, the fully shortened position of the pec is going to have your arm across the body and uh, the bench press doesn't do that. So. You know, I I think the barbell bench press is a fine movement. You would just want to combine it with a movement that has a duction at the short position. And I think that the combination of a push around with a barbell bench press would be a completely fine combination that would train your pecs completely.
0: I have nothing to add there. Yeah, you really hit the nail on the head. I I still... I'll still use benching uh, a little bit. I generally go with a more narrow grip now, but I mean, I still can get a really good chest stimulus out of it. It's really, how does it feel in your joints? How does it feel in the target musculature? But like Brian said, consider the lengthened overload. You also want something that's going to bias the short position just to really get the most robust um, stimulus out of your chest that you could. Yep,
1: and you can't hit the short position without coming across the body. So you just need to have a, a movement that goes along with the barbell bench press. Um, cool. Uh, last training question. How do you determine arm path of a given exercise is good or bad and lines up with the joints? I, I, (laughs) my answer is kind of just like, you, you kind of got to learn this stuff. Like you got to go to an N one practical or go through the biomechanics course. Um, you can, you know, obviously just kind of pick at their free content online and you'll probably learn a whole lot. Um, very simply, one of the best ways to line up with a cable movement is to set your body and the cable in a way in which uh, the cable lines up with the path of the motion. So meaning that you're not trying to fight the cable the whole time. So imagine if um a super specific example, but imagine I'm trying to do like an incline cable press where I'm trying to press up. But imagine you like a silly person put the cables like seven slots too high. So now the cables are up and you're like, well, I'm trying to press up, but the cables aren't like lining up with the line of the motion that I'm trying to press. So then you, you think intuitively like, like a smart person that you are and you move the cables down so that now when you go to press your forearm is forming a line with the cable and you don't actually have to break that line as you press. And now you've created this alignment of joints with the cable structure. Um So I think in, in a lot of ways, like if you get it close, it can be ambiguous and you can be like, yeah, yeah, this feels great. Cause I went through a lot of that too, where I had it like really close and then cast would, you know, tell me like move it up one or down one or whatever, and it would feel better. Um, But when you're way off, like when you're way off and you're fighting the cable the whole time, like, you know, that shit, you can feel it. Like it just doesn't feel good. So, um, within the spectrum of, of close enough, uh, you can then finagle with, with your setup from there and try to get it like super specific to line up, um, with the joint, with the forearm, with the cable and create this whole spectrum of alignment.
0: Yeah. The the only little thing I'll add there, um, if you are doing a more like a, like a, a bicep or a tricep or maybe even potentially shoulder type movement where you are doing most of your um el- it's like elbow flexion you're basically going to line the cable up with your humerus right so i think about like a bicep tricep thing and then if you were doing a like more chest or back type movement where it's going to be the joint moving most is going to be a little bit more um, distal right closer to the body you are going to line the cable up with the forearm and that that's like a really simplified way of wrapping your head around it's not perfect but it does start thinking okay am i doing a bicep curl is the cable in line with my humerus right am i doing a pull down is the cable in line with my forearm sort of thing can can help yep i love that no that's a great way of putting it too Cool.
1: And then the last question is just, uh, someone asking if we do one-off consults, if he could pay for an hour of our time. And so, uh, I was going to write him back privately and not even include this, but just in case other people are interested in doing this, um, I do do this relatively often, uh, mostly when people email me or DM me or whatever. And, um, uh, we could negotiate rates, but I usually do, uh, Oh, let's not even talk about it. Let's just just we'll, we'll just talk about rates when when you hit me up. But but they're relatively reasonable as what you would expect for an hour of someone's time.
0: This was this was interesting. I'm glad we're taking two separate uh, approaches. I do not. Um, I am getting to to a point where I am really realizing how valuable and how much I, I value my time, and it is. I I can't offer it at a rate that is mostly i feel is, is reasonable for people to to break my flow of the work and the things that i'm delivering the things i have to get to my clients like in order for me to price you into that it'd have to be high for me to be, like sacrifice the, the opportunity costs on that time and i just know this is for me right i never want to speak for brian what, that information that i can give you on that call is going to be applicable for at most maybe four weeks. And then it needs to change again, sort of thing. And at the rate that I would charge you, you'd just be better off signing up for my coaching. Like it would be cheaper <laughs> literally to do that. So that's why I do not do it. I have done it for like some older clients who, are, who have been in like a really bad spot and I just really want to help them out. But other than that, I generally do not do it because it's limited in the efficacy of what I can give you in 60 minutes sort of thing. Mm-hmm.
1: No, and I, I get all those points too. I mean, I, I totally vibe with them and I pretty much agree. The main reason I do it is because um, I, I only take on three one-on-one clients at a time. And so I want to be able to try to help people. And and honestly, to be honest, most of the people that are asking me to do this are people that are doing one of my group programs and so they're like, hey, you know, I want to e- individualize this piece of the program or can you help me like, you know, figure out how I should do my nutrition over the next 12 weeks of of the training program or, you know, I want to I want to train for Murph. Actually, I just had a girl recently who wanted to train for Murph um, and also do my group programming. And so we had like a, a consult call about how one might go about uh, modifying my programming so that she can train for Murph along with it. Um, but it's usually stuff like that. Uh, I, I enjoy it though. I think it's cool to be able to talk to different people. And then uh, like 3DMJ does a really similar thing. So they only take on one-on-one clients right now that are um, contest prepping because they just have a full roster. So the way that they handle people that uh, want to do one-on-one coaching with them, but don't, uh, but but they don't have a spot for they do these kind of once a month consults. And I think uh, at least as of two years ago, 3DMJ was charging, I think, around 200 for for these hours, which is similar to what I charge. And uh, and you would basically just have like an hour chat with one of the coaches at the end of it. You know, maybe they design you a a small training cycle for the next four weeks until you guys meet again. And then, you know, you talk again for an hour and they design you another one. And so it's almost like a one-on-one coaching, but instead of meeting weekly, you're just meeting monthly type thing. Um, so I think that that's kind of like a cool way of going about it as well for, for someone like me who, you know, I only have three slots for one-on-one coaches or one-on-one clients. If somebody wanted to have a feeling of a one-on-one plan, then, you know, a once every four week call or something like that could be a cheaper option. So
0: yeah, I, I, um,
1: anyways, I do like thoughts. that. And,
0: and I, I do potentially in the future, something like that. But I mean, I have a, a, not full actually. So if you are interested in coaching, my client roster is not full really little plug there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's just, I haven't been able to price it at something that I feel like comfortable. Cause if I'm being completely honest, it would be me asking you a ton of these, um, Wormhole questions, and then it would be like, well, we could do this, or we could do this, but this is going to be contingent right, upon yeah, like right. these three. It th- it'd be Yeah, it would be, be sixty minutes of me saying it depends, and I need more data. And I think because, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, I I like to be very very hands on with my coaching because I really want to control the outcomes as much as I can because I, people come to me to get results. Like, I need to have my hands in your pockets as much as I can to help you get these results. And in that dynamic. I, I can't have my hands in your pockets, so I can't help you as much as I would want to. Yeah. Yep. Yep.
1: Yep. Totally. That makes sense. Well, I am past my time, so we need to, uh, we need to wrap this
0: thing up and I need to get kids to school. All right, so Brian has to take his kids to school. So guys, we will talk to you next week. Have a fantastic week. Thanks for listening. Later. Thank you so much for listening to Eat, Train, Prosper. If you found this episode valuable, please subscribe or share us with your friends. You can find more from Aaron at StrakerNutritionCo.com and more from Brian at EvolvedTrainingSystems.com. Talk to you guys next time.